Tonight, we will be covering at Nehemiah chapter 4. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. It will not be your average teaching on Nehemiah chapter 4. Oh, yeah. This evening's content is probably most people's favorite portion of Ezra, Nehemiah. We're excited to dive into old treasures with you as well as new treasures. But before we continue, we want to share an exciting update with you. You ready for an exciting update? Thanks, we're getting the band back together. Our team is going to be sharing with you in the coming weeks completely unified. During last minute and unorthodox flight path, my parents are on their way home right now. Before we get too excited, I said unorthodox flight path. They are popping through Europe and all kinds of other places because it was the only route that was available. With that in mind, though, they will be arriving later this week after several stops and long layovers. But we will be back together, fully unified, for the coming chapters of Ezra and Nehemiah. But this evening, this evening will be a wonderful display of what we call reverse validation. Yeah! Nehemiah has been sent to comfort and build the security of national Israel, and the enemy hates it. We are excited to say in advance that it is impossible for the enemy to overcome the people of God. You will see families posted in their God-ordained function operating in their fullest capacity, as the result will be the continuation of the work despite the opposition. You will see that workers and warriors are one and the same when they are in the kingdom of God. Men will grab hold of their godly design and labor together guarding one another and strengthening one another's faith. Yeah. Tonight we will follow their example and we will take up our tools. We will take up our weapons and we will post our guards. The word of God is living and active sword and it will be firmly strapped to our side just as it was for the men in Nehemiah's day. We're going to begin tonight with a brief review that's going to aid in our understanding of the total narrative all the way up to this point tonight. Our first slide is on Ezra and Nehemiah and their names. Ezra means help. Nehemiah means Jehovah or Yahweh comforts. Yahweh has consoled the comfort of God, the aid of the Lord. It comes from two roots, to comfort and Jehovah or Yahweh. You're going to remember that Zerubbabel's name means seed of Babylon. Adonai sent help and now comfort to the seed that was born in Babylon. But that seed is now back in the land of Israel. We saw through the help of God that all 12 tribes were unified and purified of any Gentile influence. Come on. Now we are seeing the comfort of God at work in a people who are in distress yeah. and disgrace, but are still greatly loved by Yahweh. Come on. Our next slide should remind you of what it cost to bring about that comfort. Let's talk about the cost of comfort. Remember that Nehemiah's name means Yahweh consoles or Yahweh comforts. You remember when news was brought to Nehemiah how he responded in Nehemiah 1.4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's initial reaction with the call of God brought him into four months of anguish. 
but it produced a decree that would change the world forever. Oh, yes. yeah. oh come on, do you remember that decree? Yes. Yeah. See, this is the decree of Artaxerxes Langemani. The proposed date is 445 to 444. This specifically outlined in Nehemiah chapter 2. And the decree is to rebuild the city itself, yeah. its walls, not just the temple, but the actual structure of Jerusalem. See, the decree that Nehemiah received through Yahweh's sovereignty in the life of Artaxerxes, with his hand on him, it paved the way for the coming of Messiah himself. Justice was revealed to the prophet Daniel. In addition to that, it had a very real and immediate effect on the people of God, namely their comfort as Nehemiah arrived to rebuild the walls. However, the cost of bringing this comfort of God to Israel, well, it would not end at four months of anguish. Nehemiah would continue to face difficulties in the form of opposition coming from both within and without Jerusalem. Now, despite the fact that Nehemiah in no way emphasizes his own greatness or position, but instead exalts the will of God for Jerusalem in his introduction, he was cupbearer to the king. In Persian culture, this was a position of unique standing. Let's talk about Nehemiah the cupbearer. Extra biblical references that mention the office of cupbearer in the Persian court have revealed that this was a position second only in authority to the king. If you want to study that biblically, look at Genesis 40 and 41. Nehemiah was not only the chief treasurer and keeper of the king's signet ring, but he also tasted the king's food to make sure no one had poisoned it. The cupbearer in later Achaemenid times was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. So Nehemiah penned his own introduction. And after he highlighted God's people, God's character, and his own yearning for their well-being, he then let you know that, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer, despite its modern connotation, was the highest position in the Persian Empire. In effect, Nehemiah was much like Joseph or Mordecai before him. Now our next slide will remind you of the scope of work that Nehemiah performed for the king, as well as the amount of preparation that went into Nehemiah's four months of prayer. Let's talk about Nehemiah's research together. You guys see that slide? Nehemiah then asked for the biggest favor yet. Knowing he would face opposition from his enemies, he requested letters of permission from the king to allow him to pass through the various provinces in the Trans-Euphrates, the large area west of the Euphrates River. Nehemiah also asked that the king write a letter to Asaph, the man in charge of the king's forest. Nehemiah knew that he would need access to timber for rebuilding the gates and the wall and other parts of the city. The citadel was a fortification to protect the temple. The fact that Nehemiah knew the name of the man in charge of the king's forest near Jerusalem may indicate that he had done some careful research. (laughs) Nehemiah knew to ask for a letter to personally give to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Now, a table waiter might be aware that he's going to need some timber in order to rebuild some stuff. But a table waiter also would not likely know the name of the specific man who keeps the timber nearly a thousand miles away. Guys, this is not a time period when you can just Google something and like, oh, who's the keeper of the king's forest a thousand miles away? Oh, it's Asa. 
No, he couldn't pick up a phone. He could, couldn't even do snail mail. He couldn't get into, into a plane and fly and do an overnight journey. No, this took some careful research on the part of Nehemiah. And he had to have the position and the access to those documents to be able to accomplish it. Additionally, Nehemiah's insight into the workings of the Persian court would have likely meant that he knew about the king's prior dealings with the region of Judea and the king's later decision to send Ezra to Jerusalem. So on our next slide, remind you of this progression in the heart of the Persian monarch. You remember this title, Until I So Ordered. In his reply to the king, uh, actually strengthened the position of the Israelites by leaving open the possibility that their work might resume later by his permission. Oh, yeah. This, of course, did happen later on under the leadership of Nehemiah. In this story that we're reading tonight, the king did, did search the archives and found that Jerusalem had been powerful at one time. What an encouragement this must have been to Ezra's original readers to recall the years of David and Solomon and know that even a pagan king acknowledged the sovereignty of their empire centered at Jerusalem. The king commanded that the building project stop until I so ordered. This was the same king who later in 444 BC changed his edict and allowed Nehemiah to return to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that we studied last week in Nehemiah 2, 1 through 9. However, the immediate result was a forced cessation of the building activity because the enemies used force to back up a legal document from the Persian king. Now, King Artaxerxes, as recorded in Ezra 4's parenthetical insertion, was the one who issued a temporary cease and desist order on the building of the city and the building of the wall. But thankfully, the order was issued with a clause stating until I so ordered, so that the king could investigate the matter himself later on. King Artaxerxes at some point became personally acquainted with Ezra and was impacted by Ezra's bold proclamation of the law. Ezra told the king in Ezra 8.22, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his anger is against all who forsake him. So this relationship with Ezra, it paved the way for King Artaxerxes to recognize Nehemiah's God-given task and send him to Jerusalem as well. Praise God. See, there's no doubt that the sovereign hand of God was at work in Israel's historical context for the good of God's people in the good of Jerusalem. See, it is one thing for King Artaxerxes to send Ezra. Yes, go teach the Torah. It's another thing for him to send Nehemiah, go build the walls that I previously put a cease and desist order on. This is the work of Yahweh moving on this king's heart. It's remarkable to see the impact of these Jewish men and women like Daniel, Mordecai, Esther, Ezra, and now Nehemiah have had on these pagan kings. So with that in mind, let's revisit Old Faithful. (laughs) You guys are becoming very familiar with this slide. As you see on the left, we start with our captivity, which lasted 70 years. And that captivity went into the time of Zerubbabel. In Zerubbabel's time, we see that the temple is rebuilt. Then there's a gap between wave one and wave two, where we have the book of Esther taking place. 57 years after wave one, Ezra initiates wave two. And in that wave, Ezra leads the people and reforms them. Then we have a gap of 12 years 
And then we have Nehemiah initiating the third wave, where the wall is rebuilt, and that is where a big, blue, beautiful box is tonight, because that is what we are studying, the third wave. See, it is important to remember something as you engage with the gut-wrenching and exciting aspects of this third and final wave. All of the work, say all. All. All of the work being done is built upon the foundation already laid by the ministry of Zerubbabel and Jeshua in the heart of the nation. It's being built upon the foundation of Ezra's work in the soul of the nation. Tonight, you will see that the Holy Spirit has once again stirred men into holy action. They will grab hold of their godly design and labor together to guard one another and strengthen one another's faith. They will bring about the revival of Israel's national strength on a national stage. You see, Adonai and his faithfulness will never forsake his covenant with the people of Israel, the land of Israel, or the one city where he has caused his name to dwell, that being Jerusalem, the city of David. Each wave of return should be rightly viewed as a continued sign of Adonai's grace toward Israel. As John 1.16 comments, For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. The impact of correctly understanding Nehemiah's work to be the continuation of Yahweh's grace, which started in the time of Zerubbabel, this impact cannot be overstated. Look at our next slide. Although the books of Ezra and Nehemiah appear as two separate works in our English Bibles, they were originally two parts of a single work, and they should be studied together as a single whole, which is what we're doing. Not only is ancient Jewish tradition clear about this, the division into two books being probably an innovation by the Christian church, but more importantly, the contents of the books themselves demonstrate it. In particular, the second half of Nehemiah serves as a climax to all that has gone before, not least the work of Ezra, as his prominence in Nehemiah 8 makes clear. Although Nehemiah 1.1 obviously starts a new section in the work, it marks no more of a break in the narrative than does Ezra 7.1, where Ezra himself is first introduced. In many ways, the work of Nehemiah was the aim of Adonai through the labors of Zerubbabel and Ezra. This makes Nehemiah a type of Christ in that his work is viewed as the culmination of that which came before him. Just as Romans, the 10th chapter and 4th verse says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Next, we want to review a familiar slide from last week as we engage with the effect and the progression of the word. All right, this is the Tanakh, which is an, an acronym, which is an abbreviation form of, from the initial components in a phrase or word. So Tanakh, Torah, Nevim, Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, writing. These, these interact with a man's heart, his soul, and his strength. This should draw the mind, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The Tanakh was given to Israel and for Israel. So praise God that we've been allowed to participate. Amen. 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 
The revelation of God's word always starts by transforming the heart, warning the soul, and finally, it is expected to produce action by the means of your strength, just like it did for Nehemiah. Come on. The word of God is always aimed at right action. Jesus is the perfect demonstration of right action and how to utilize one's strength. And this was made possible for him because his heart was perfectly inclined towards God and his soul was in perfect agreement with God. Nehemiah, in a very similar way, represents the fruit of all the work before him. He is a demonstration of what one's strength should be used for. So as you're continuing to grow in your understanding of the power of the Tanakh in men like Nehemiah, it's important that we remain aware of the time frame that we are studying. Let's review our placement in history with our next slide. Amen. So the third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple, it occurred in 586 B.C. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 B.C. Zerubbabel and his companions, they returned under the Edict of Cyrus in 539 or 538, within that same time frame. The temple was completed in 516 B.C., which was 70 years after its destruction. Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C. to reform the people and teach them the Torah. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem in the 440s B.C. to rebuild the wall and city. So let's work down the left of the slide. You will notice that around 538 B.C., Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel under the Edict of Cyrus so that they could begin rebuilding the temple. They began working on the temple in 538, but the work stalled for about 17 to 18 years. It's a long time. But thankfully, Haggai and Zechariah stirred the people back into action in about 520. With the work underway again and aided by these prophets, what took 17 to 18 years in a stall was finished in about 516 B.C. As you slide down the scale, almost 60 years, you will come to our second wave where Ezra returned to Jerusalem in 458 to begin the reformation work necessary for the remnant of the 12 tribes to be holy, pure, and spotless as God intended. Now as you slide down to our blue box, you will come to Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, roughly 13 years after Ezra's arrival. Now remember, the work of Nehemiah is happening almost exactly 70 years after the completion of the temple in 516 B.C. Also, Nehemiah is working almost 100 years after the first return from exile under Zerubbabel in 539-538 B.C. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in the city. He does this to secure Jerusalem so that the city will fully function as it once did in the days of Solomon. Nehemiah's first leg of the work lasts for roughly 12 years as he faces opponents from within the city and without. Nehemiah eventually effects reform in the city while establishing the security of the city, paving the way for Messiah who would later walk into the city, Jerusalem. Now, our next slide comes from our studies last week. We saw the people of Israel working shoulder to shoulder to build the walls of Jerusalem. Every man was responsible for their section and began to labor alongside their countrymen. Do you guys remember working around this slide last week? 
From the cohort of builders, we saw exemplary efforts from people like the men of Tekoa. Oh, yeah. Who built their section and then moved on to build other sections of the wall with their brothers. We put on a map all the areas described in the text to gain a better picture of what this may have looked like with every group posted at their section. And that's what you're looking at right there. This is the scope of work on the wall itself. Now, those of you who have read ahead may have noticed that Nehemiah chapter 4 all the way through the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 7 described continued work in progress on the wall and its gates and its doors. This is because Nehemiah chapter 3 is another parenthetical insertion, much like we saw in Ezra chapter 4. Its purpose is to succinctly give you an accounting of the areas rebuilt and the men who participated in the rebuilding in advance of detailing the opposition that they faced while rebuilding, which we're getting to in these following chapters. The compiler of Ezra Nehemiah, who was Ezra, wanted you to know the totality of the work and the men involved from the moment that they rose up to begin rebuilding. Just as Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18 says, Nehemiah 2.18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Here in verse 18, you will see the people of Jerusalem responding to the move of God's comfort through Nehemiah. Ezra takes the time in the form of chapter 3 to give you a description of what they have risen to build and who rose to perform the rebuilding. Next, we want to look at verses 19 through 20 of Nehemiah 2 because the context and the chronology is directly connected to the first verses of Nehemiah 4. So for context, we will again pick up in verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now turn your ears in. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So saints, we will help you make the connection as we go through the text. But you will immediately notice that verse 19 leads off with the enemies of Israel ridiculing and mocking the idea of Jerusalem's wall being rebuilt. Zambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem seem to believe that insinuating the act of rebuilding was rebellion toward the king. Well, that it would be enough to deter the Israelites from their tasks. You, however, know from chapter 3 that they could not be intimidated. So as we pick up in Nehemiah 4.1, you will see that there's a pattern of escalation as Israel is beginning to actually perform the work of rebuilding that they just committed to. Tonight, in an unusual format break, we will read all of chapter 4 and then pray before beginning again in verse 1 to aid in continuity. So, Pastor, if you would take us through it. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews 
and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building. If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Whenever, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. Well, I hope you enjoyed last week's teaching. Did you marvel at seeing the coordinated construction efforts in Chapter 3? Yep. Yes. yes. Did you really think that that happened without opposition? <laughs> no. As we enter Chapter 4 tonight, Chapter 5, and Chapter 6, you're going to see the internal and external struggles that they had to face to accomplish what you got to see in Chapter 3. I'm going to begin to pray for us, and then Justin will pick up in the text. Father, I thank you for the family that is in this room. Lord, we're asking that you would expand our awareness this evening. And the one that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word. But that you would also instill into us holy conviction, Lord, as we read these verses. 
Lord, that you would strip away the things that we believe we already know about the text so that they do not hinder our further growth. Lord, we desire to become like your word and we commit this time to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 Well, as you're already starting to see, chapters 2 and 4 are connected chronologically. Chapter 2, verse 18, they replied, let us start rebuilding. Chapter 4, verse 1 says that when they heard we were rebuilding the wall. You see that that's connected. We're going to start with the introduction of what happened as they began to rebuild. Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. So immediately you are noticing that in Nehemiah 2, Sambalot was there ridiculing the Jews when they were moved in faith to commit themselves to the work of rebuilding. They committed themselves to start. But now in Nehemiah 4.1, they are commencing the work that they committed themselves to at the end of chapter 2. So guess who's back? <laughs> guess who's back? Guess who's back? When he realizes that they will indeed follow through with their commitment despite his intimidation tactics. None other than Sambalot himself. As we've noted earlier, Sambalot is an Akkadian word. And it features the word sin in his name. Oh. Man, when your name is based on sin, that's a bad name. That's not good. But that word in Akkadian sin, it means the moon god has given life. He is called Sambalot the Horonite. This scarcely means that he was from Horonaim and Moab, but more likely that he was a resident of Beth Haran in Samaria, which is actually very close to Jerusalem. You see, the men of Israel have rallied in a righteous response to Nehemiah's call, and they have begun the process of rebuilding. Now, you know from the overview in chapter 3 that it is inevitable Amen. that they will succeed in their mission. Yeah. And that is true. However... Chapters 4, 5, and 6 give us insight into the opposition that they faced as they performed their good work. Almost immediately, as the grace of God is revealed through Nehemiah, a son of the moon god appears in opposition to the will of Adonai. Church, we can glory in the fact that the saints of the Most High have certain victory. Hallelujah! And the enemy will not gloat over us. Sanballat behaves like a petulant child when he realizes that his initial intimidation tactics have indeed failed. Before we proceed to the coming verses, we want to read two passages that embody the attitude of Ezra and Nehemiah. That attitude is one of certain victory. Come on. Let's take our first passage. This is Isaiah Chapter 46, verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So once again, we'll help you make the connection, but chapter 3 is a parenthetical insertion. It's designed to give you the final outcome before you see the daily opposition. Every difficulty that they face can and will be overcome. Amen. The wall will be rebuilt with its gatehouses, doors, and bars. Saints, this is analogous to our position in every way. We know the end 
from the beginning because Christ has made it known. Yeah. He has triumphed. And our current opposition is simply immaterial. Amen. Yeah. Well, we better read Philippians 1, 27 through 28 as well. <laughs> Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. You already know from chapter 3 that they will prevail by standing firm. Or another way to say it, shoulder to shoulder. In one spirit. So as we continue in the text, notice the continued holy defiance of fear in the face of opposition. It is a sign that Sanballat, well, he'll be destroyed and that they will be saved. Let's pick up in verse 2. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Look, we want to assure you that we will answer the question. We will answer the question, can they bring these stones back to life? Because the answer from the Lord is, yes. 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 Because the Lord's answer is, yes. We can be absolutely certain that we will take captives from the fears. But first, we want to highlight the connection between Nehemiah 2 and Nehemiah 4. So looking at the timeline of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 2, 19 through 20, we read, But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Listen to how this flows right on into Nehemiah 4.1. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. So again, Nehemiah 4 begins seamlessly where Nehemiah 2 left off. Nehemiah in chapter 2 reaffirmed, like Zerubbabel before him, that the sons of Israel were the only ones with a right to Jerusalem and that it was Yahweh who would see this work through. Sambalot had presumed that his mocking and intimidation tactics would prevent the people of God from acting upon their commitment to rebuild. He was, however, wrong in his assumption. So you may remember that the petulant Sambalot perceived what was good for Israel as evil for him because he worshipped the moon god Sin. 
When the news reached him that Israel was rebuilding the walls, despite his intimidation tactics, it obviously caused Sanballat deep concern, anger, even fear. We know this because he proceeds to overcompensate. (laughs) He proceeds to escalate by bringing the army of Samaria with him this time. Mm. So the compiler of Ezra Nehemiah wanted you to know that in the face of these escalating threats, the completion of the work was a certainty. This is why chapter 3 was placed as a parenthetical insertion between chapters 2 and 4. In other words, he took a pause in the story just before things escalated drastically to let you know in advance that Yahweh would indeed cause these brave Israelites to prevail. Sanballat and his mixed multitude of associates are not nearly done with their satanic schemes yet. But the compiler of Ezra Nehemiah intended for you to hold on to the knowledge that Israel will indeed ultimately prevail. Now, I think it's time we talk about stones. Mm. You know, the stones that were burned with fire in 586 during the Babylonian siege. The stones that Nehemiah is using to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the strength of Israel. You ever wondered what those stones are? We'd like to show you some recent archaeological finds that will help you visualize Nehemiah's setting and the task that's before him. Our first slide on the subject is a map showing the location of the archaeological dig. And following this, we have some pictures that we would like to speak to you about. So on this map, where Nehemiah is building, they found, from the time period of Nehemiah, stones, parts of the wall. And we want you to catch that it's just south of the Temple Mount, right where it's highlighted in yellow. So this is a 3D rendering of the city of Jerusalem, directly after Nehemiah's work of rebuilding the city wall. Notice the yellow circle on the map that is our current location for all of the following images. We would now like to show you the ongoing excavations that are taking place within that yellow circle on the map. So you guys got it? You saw the yellow circle? Yeah. 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 This is a dig site. In this picture, you're seeing the total area of the modern-day dig site that is, once again, directly south of the Temple Mount. What you're seeing are several layers of civilization from different time periods. The very highest structures, the one on top, those date from around 500 years ago in this particular empire known as the Ottomans, Hmm. or Turkish. As you go deeper, you pass the Byzantine era, then the Roman era, And at the very bottom, you reach the first temple period around the time of the Babylonian destruction. Our next picture we want to show you is what was found from the time frame of the Babylonian era. So the Israelis were blessed to be able to dig here. And as they dug through the layers of civilizations and they got to the very bottom, indicating the earliest structures around the Babylonian time frame, they found this wall. And as you can see, this is a wall that is dated to Nehemiah's time. And you can see the stones that were incorporated into the wall. They still feature burn marks from the Babylonian destruction. And those burn marks survived even until today. But what you're looking at is not a stone laying on the ground. That stone is incorporated into the wall. If those stones were burned in Nehemiah's day, they were burned because Nehemiah says it. But they're even burned enough 
to where we can see the charring marks today. Our next photo is going to zoom in on some of these burn marks here. Look at that. In this photo, you can see remains at the Babylonian layer. These, this is charred wood that was destroyed by the Babylonians. The reason this wood survived is because it was encased in mortar by the men who were building with Nehemiah. The ar archaeological findings show that the men of Nehemiah's day did not discard the rubble that was present. Let me repeat that one more time. These findings show that the men of Nehemiah's day did not discard the rubble that was present. They actually used the existing rubble to rebuild the wall with. This is amazing to see because it points to the fact that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem did in fact succeed in restoring the wall from heaps of rubble, despite all the taunts of their enemies. Let's take our next one. Our goal is that now that you've engaged with the Word of God, these will help you feel the reality of what really happened. As you can see, the archaeologists not only found wood and stone, they also found ash from the fire set by the Babylonians. That's what's in his hand right there, is ash. So as you're staring at that photo, and you're visualizing what the extent of the Babylonian destruction that remains, even to this day, as you're thinking about it and looking at that photo, we're going to re-engage with verses 2 and verse 3. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those people Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Yes. Will they offer sacrifices? Yes. Will they finish in a day? Probably not. <laughs> Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? Burned as they are. Yes. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stone. Well, he obviously wasn't right because they're still standing today and you're looking at photos of them. We hope this helps paint the setting for you. What Nehemiah and his men are standing on is ash, surrounded by ash. And the God of the resurrection is still at work in the midst of this situation. Amen. Now, there's a particular aspect of this interchange that we want to highlight. Notice that the ridiculing and mocking was being done in the presence of the army of Samaria. Sambalat not only brought Tobiah, but they brought a large group of people to join in the mocking, so that the embarrassment was at its fullest extent. Mm. Not only is there a large group present, notice what they're saying. The task at hand was seemingly impossible. The Israelites were not tasked with making repairs with a clean slate. They had to use materials that had already been destroyed and were nothing more than piles of rubble. On top of that, to make matters worse, we want to show you the Hebrew word being used for ridicule. Let's look at Sambalat's ridicule. I'm having trouble saying that name. Sambalat, Sambalat, whatever. <laughs> Sambalat. Look at his ridicule. In late biblical Hebrew, the verb la'ag appears to have been displaced by the Aramaic la'av, which means mock. But it is generally agreed that la'ag, which they've translated as ridicule, originally meant 
stutter, or stammer. You see, the Hebrew word for ridicule has the literal translation of to stutter or to stammer. This lends the idea that Sanballat, his associates, Tobiah, and the Sumerian army were not just mocking the attempts of the Israelites to rebuild the walls in the city. They were mocking their speech in a derogatory and repetitive sense. Much like young boys repeating what their brother just said, but in a stuttering fashion to make them sound less intelligent. You guys know what I mean. I'm talking like Sam Sam Ballot saying, you have no right or his, I'm sorry, Nehemiah saying to them, you have no right or historic claim to the city. Uh, You have no right or historic claim to the city. Something like that. The mocking probably sounded just like that with some stammering and stuttering on in there. Remember in the midst of this mocking and intimidation tactics, Nehemiah and the men with him are literally standing on the ash that we just saw photos of. Come on. Begins to make all the sense in the world why the compiler of Ezra and Nehemiah wanted you to know the final outcome prior to engaging in these chapters of opposition. There's nothing in the natural that would indicate Nehemiah or the men with him would have a great chance of succeeding in their mission. However, Adonai has declared the end from the beginning. And he is the God who brings resurrection from the ash heap. Through Abraham, the nation of Israel is the hope of the world. And even more specifically, the hope of the world is through David and through the city of David, Jerusalem. So as we begin to look at this process of ashes to resurrection, we want to begin with one of the first prophecies that is directly about a coming king in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's talk about Hannah. 1 Samuel (laughs) chapter 2, picking up in verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's prayer is unique because she boldly declared the connection between the anointed king and Adonai long before Israel had its first king. Yes, she does. Even at this point in time, resurrection from ash is forecasted as the work of Adonai and his people Israel and ultimately through an anointed king. However, before we reach the ultimate resurrection from ash through an anointed king, there are many cycles of this resurrection pattern. Every cycle must begin from a place of ash and destruction so that it may give way to the resurrection life. All right, somebody say every, every cycle. cycle. Jeremiah 31, 37 through 40. This is what the Lord says. 
Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel Ooh. because of all they have done, yeah. says the Lord. Now we could talk about that all night. <laughs> But suffice it to say, God is faithful to Israel. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Yes, what? Sir. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gerab and then turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes, ashes. are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate will be a holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. Even in Jeremiah's day, God was forecasting the events that we're reading about in Nehemiah 4. It just so happens to be there that the area in verse 40, all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate is the area that the photos were taken of that we showed you earlier. Come on. For many... The discovery of ashes, burnt stones, well, it may not be worth much or look like much to them. But for those who know the word of God and those who know the heart of God, yeah. those burned stones and ash, well, they're a testimony to the strength of the God of the resurrection Come on, and man. his ability to fulfill his word. Yeah. This passage in Jeremiah was fulfilled in the time in Nehemiah, and it will ultimately be fulfilled in our future. Mm-hmm. Additionally, They would have had Daniel's interpretation from Daniel 9 that marked a unique significance in the decree that they were currently operating in to rebuild the city and that it was different than all others that had gone before it. They would have known that their work in some ways was paving the way for Israel's future restoration in the coming of Messiah because Daniel 9 forecasted it. Imagine what a source of confidence this passage of Jeremiah And our next passage in Isaiah were to Nehemiah and his men, since they had these writings in their possession while they were working. Come on, could you imagine being ridiculed by Sanballat saying, will you really turn those ash heaps into a wall? And Nehemiah looking at him and said, Jeremiah already prophesied where I'm standing. It will be resurrected. Could you imagine that? Well, imagine Nehemiah standing on the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 61, 1 through 5. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And listen to this. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. And they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Hallelujah. You see, Nehemiah is fulfilling this cycle in the pattern of prophecy because he is sent to the people of Israel. Just like the prophecy says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Nehemiah is sent to the people of Israel, and he is there to secure their inheritance. Now, this passage 
was the same passage that Jesus read in Nazareth in Luke 4, 18 through 20. And he said that he fulfilled another cycle in this pattern. Mm. You see, this pattern will ultimately be fulfilled when Messiah returns to Jerusalem to build the eternal city. What we are reading is a pivotal passage to the Jewish people in Isaiah. It connects the work of Nehemiah to the coming of Messiah and the restoration of Israel in permanence. If the stones don't live in Nehemiah's day, then there is no city for King Jesus to triumphantly enter. (coughs) Nehemiah is fulfilling his role in the plan of God, literally ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Are you beginning to understand why the compiler of Ezra Nehemiah wanted you to know the end from the beginning? The compiler knew that there would be dark days of opposition before the rebirth and resurrection of national Israel's strength. The compiler also wanted you to know that the outcome of national Israel's state was and always will be certain in resurrection power. We want to look at another prophecy that portrays this resurrection cycle. Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen such things? Can a country be born in a day, or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Hearing this, you might recognize these questions as being very, even eerily similar to the questions that Samballot and his company asked. Looking at the ash heap of Jerusalem, it seemed impossible for the enemies of God to conceive that these mere, these meager men could accomplish such a feat. Would it surprise you that this is the passage that is commonly quoted to portray how God birthed the state of Israel on May 14, 1948? You see... It has always surprised the nations at large that the God of Israel actually resurrects his people and he does so over and over again. From the ashes of Babylon, the nation was rebirthed. And from the ashes of the Holocaust, the nation of Israel was born again. In our studies together, we surveyed the prophecies of Jeremiah, which clearly portray a historical resurrection out of the ashes of Babylon. But they also display a resurrection out of mystery Babylon's final doom. Let's take a look at the last prophetic book in our canon. Revelation 21. We're going to read 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Come on. From the ashes of the Babylonian destruction, it was prophesied that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. From the ashes of the Roman destruction, 
it was prophesied that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. From the ashes of the Holocaust, it was prophesied that the nation of Israel would be born. We know from the book of Revelation that Jerusalem will be rebuilt from the ashes of future destruction and the doom of mystery Babylon. Church, much like Nehemiah, we know the end from the beginning. The book of Revelation let us know that no state of destruction, despair, or despondency can stop the ultimate fulfillment of beauty coming from ashes. Burned stones, callings, lives, or ashes cannot stop the resurrection power of Christ. Burned stones may not look like much, but they are the building blocks that God pours His Spirit into to build His temple and His city. The people of God have been doing this throughout the ages, and so can we. No amount of ridiculing, mocking, impossible odds, or fear tactics can stop us. Our God is a God of resurrection. Our God is a God of resurrection. Man, and his saints can look at a pile of ashes and see possibility when they know their God is ordained that they will be resurrected. He can make the burned stones come to life. And we will move from ashy to classy. Come yeah. on, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Saints, there's always the great challenge to decide what we can and cannot share with you. And it's important that in an hour and two minutes we move to verse four. With that said, next time you are reading in your own time, Matthew 3, verses 8 through 9, or Luke 3, verse 8, you would do well to keep the historical context of the destroyed Judean leadership in the time of Jeremiah and the Babylonians that was resurrected out of a broken down stones during the days of Nehemiah. And in fact, when John the baptizer says, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham, means it in a more literal sense than you believed. Out of these same stones that previously experienced judgment, God can resurrect national Israel once again, just like he did in the past. The first century setting is in the wake of the last time God used a Gentile power to chastise the leadership of Israel. And from the ashes and burned stones, he raised it again. What the men in the first century did not know was that more cycles of Gentile destruction and God's resurrection were in their future. In the immediate context, That would be Rome. And we know from the holistic counsel of the prophets that there's at least still one more cycle ahead of us in our present day. So with that in mind, let's pick up in verse 4, brother. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. All right, so we've just moved from exciting things. God can resurrect from ashes. Now we're going to focus on a very important truth from this verse. You see, there's an unfortunate truth in the church at large. And, frankly, in this room. The truth is that we do not fully grasp, understand, or want to interact with the fact that God does not... Say not. Not. God does not want to save everyone. You see, there are sinful actions 
that quickly put you on a list that is not the prodigal son, but instead an enemy that bears God's hatred. We're going to review a few passages that illustrate this clearly, but first we want to tell you up front that there are two major factors at play here. You ready for them? The two factors at play are how you relate to Israel and how you relate to those who are actively building the kingdom of God. How you relate to those two things relate to which list you get put on in God's eyes. So we're going to go through this scripturally so you know that we're just not saying things. We're reading from the whole council of the Bible, and we're going to start in Exodus 17, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. The Amalekites came in Exodus 17 to attack the people of Israel as soon as they had left Egypt. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 2 says that they tried to waylay the Israelites. And this is why God was punishing them. You should remember from our Esther studies that God's war with Amalek did not subside because it had been a really long time from that uh, experience. Oh, it's probably time to reconcile at Thanksgiving. You know, time heals all wounds. <laughs> Amalek's decision to attack those who were doing the will of God at their most vulnerable yeah. moments mm-hmm. put them yeah. in a category of adversary. There is no future for national Amalek other than utter destruction as an enemy of God. You'll remember Haman. You'll remember his gallows as a great example of how God condemned him by and with his own actions. Haman built the gallows and so pronounced his own sentence. He made himself an enemy of God and was thus self-condemned. Let's go to Obadiah 8. In that day, declares the Lord, I will not destroy the wise men of Edom. Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Men of understanding in the mountains of Esau. You warriors, O Timon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So national Edom is permanently marked as an enemy of God in the prophetic writings because of their treatment of Israel in their time of distress. Yep. Our God is a merciful God, and He also has very little tolerance for those who seek to exploit, defame, and attack His children. Yes. Yeah. Their actions towards Israel determine their own sentence. Now, we've already shown you that Nehemiah is like a type of Christ. Yeah, he is. 
Many Christians have a problem with Nehemiah praying this prayer because they have a problem with the concept that God does not want to forgive certain men. But you will have to decide as you wrestle with the scripture if he is sinning or if he's representing a holy and just God who does not desire to save Sanballat. (laughs) Matthew 25, verse 44. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Ah. I'm not going to take the time to teach you why that's historical Israel. But a good cursory reading will let you know it's connected to Edom. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thanks, it is true. God desires for all men to be saved, as 1 Timothy 2, 4 says clearly. In the same way that he desires for all men to do what is right. Right. (laughs) Matthew 25 clearly continues the same concept outlined in the Tanakh. Namely, how you relate to Israel and those doing the work will define whether or not God wants to save you or condemn you. True. Adonai desires all men to be saved. But first and foremost, Israel and those who have bound themselves to Israel by doing the work of God. Amen. If your actions make him choose between a desire to save his people and a desire to save men in general, well, he'll gladly burn you for eternity to protect his people, as Romans 1.16 says. (laughs) Salvation is first for the Jew. He desires to save all men eternally. But if you show that you are an enemy to the people of God, then you won't spend eternity with the people of God. (laughs) All right, so just in case there's anybody that won't believe the scriptures unless they hear a New Testament writing. <laughs> we have a New Testament writing. This comes from Titus 3, verses 8 through 11. Listen to how Paul opens this up. This is a trustworthy saying. Ooh, that's good. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see the correlation between the builders in Nehemiah's day and those who had devoted themselves to doing what is good in Paul's day is altogether easy to make. There's a correlation there. We will not take the time to illustrate that connection any further as the discerning should be able to recognize it. (laughs) But pick up in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Look at the risk of being repetitious. We would like to point out that a man's actions have the potential to condemn him. We don't need to wait for God to make the judgment. A man's actions can condemn himself. In fact, the men who are causing division between those who are devoted to doing good, or in another way to say it, the builders, they have a limited grace period before their own actions bring condemnation. When it says that they are self-condemned, it is implying that they don't need to be condemned by God. Because they are doing this to themselves and God is simply going to give them what they are owed. 
If the source of salvation is the body at large, what does it mean for someone who can't get along with the body? There is no hope for that kind of man. If you have the gospel and you have the truth, what does it mean for someone who hates you? What does it mean for a family member that always attacks you at your weakest moment and tries to stir you away from the body? means a lot. All right, Justin. I mean, that was only one reference in the New Testament writings. What if we gave him another one? <laughs> what? Sure. So we're actually going to give you two more because we're going to give you three witnesses on the topic in the New Testament writings. We're going to read two additional words of instruction that came to us from two men that you might have heard of. The first being the Apostle Paul and the second being John, the Apostle of Love. We're going to read Romans 16 verse 17 first what the Apostle Paul had to say on the subject. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Well, that's certainly plain language, isn't it? This plain language of the text is very clear. And it actually requires no commentary from us. It's very Peshat. Keep away from them, he says. And just in case you were wondering, there were no exceptions listed in the event that the one causing division was a family member or even an old friend. Keep away from them. Yeah, so next, let's see what the apostle of love has to say on the topic. Second John 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wickedness. So let's think about Nehemiah. Nehemiah will not share in the wickedness of these men. Not by tolerating them, not by negotiating with them, and not by praying for their well-being when God does not desire their well-being. He aligns his mind will and emotions and his strength with the will of God. And he prays in accordance with God's desire, which is their damnation. Thanks. To put it succinctly, you either have to decide that Nehemiah is sinning when he's praying or he's representing the will of Adonai. We do not get to determine whether somebody is condemned. God does, and their actions show whether they are self-condemned. It is a noteworthy point that you may be sinning by continuing to pray for a relative that God no longer has any interest in redeeming. That relative has been marked out as an enemy of Christ. Put on to Nehemiah because he did not make this mistake. Come on, (laughs) let's do it. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. Saints, we've already noted before, chapter 3 gave us a summary of all that was built and all who participated in the work. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, well, it outlines the opposition that they experienced while doing the work. We see here in verse 6 of chapter 4 that despite the opposition, they've made substantial progress and have reached the halfway mark. The enemies of Israel are taking notice of this continued progression and will be increasingly motivated to bring it to a halt (laughs) because they do not like it. Verse 7. <laughs> but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, 
And if the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. So it's obvious that Sanballat and Tobiah are not appreciative of the increasing strength and security in Israel. What you may not have noticed is that there is an escalation from Nehemiah 2 up to this point that is reaching a feverish pitch. Take a look at this slide. Man, that escalated quickly. Oh. In Nehemiah 2.10, we see Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official. In Nehemiah 2.19, we see Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab. There it is. Got another guy joining. Then in Nehemiah 4, we see Sanballat, his associates, the army of Samaria. Goodness gracious. Boy, you better bring some backup. And then we have Tobiah the Ammonite. Then later on, in verse 7 of chapter 4, we see Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and now the men of Ashdod. Oh my goodness. You guys seeing that clear progression there? We just literally went through the scripture. There's a clear progression. And it occurs when the moon-worshipping man named Samballot was introduced into this story. Interesting, right? The initial displeasure with what was good for Israel at this point has reached outright fury. There is another escalation at play. What began with Sanballat and Tobiah as individuals has grown to also include the Arabs. Wow. Also include the Ammonites. Mm. Also include the men of Ashdod. As well as the associates and army that were referred to earlier. Whew. This is really painting a quite a vivid picture for us. Yeah, to make sure you're getting what Pastor is saying. You understand the difference between saying that you know, Judah, the Ammonite, was mad at Matthew, and the Texans, the Arabs, <laughs> yeah. the Ammonites, yeah. as an entire people group, yeah. are gathered wanting to destroy them. Right. Yeah. We've gone from select individuals to entire nationalities. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So... A picture is being painted here, but you might not have realized that the picture being painted is actually a shadow of events that are still yet to occur when armies surround Jerusalem. We have a slide for you to help you visualize that picture. Look at this. You might not have known where these people rested. Samaria was from the north, though. You had Ammon immediately from the east. You had Arabia coming down and then up from the south. And then Ashdod with the potential to attack from the west. The different groupings are literally surrounding Jerusalem from all sides. This is a shadow and type of what will happen as dictated in the events of Revelation. And yet, even knowing all of that, we are still confident and we still know the outcome in advance. Let's continue in verse 8. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So this pattern of nations and enemies plotting together against Jerusalem and thereby plotting against Yahweh's will is pervasive in the scripture. Now we want to show you just two of our favorite examples We're going to start in Psalm 83. We're going to catch 1 through 5. Yeah. Mm. Oh God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, oh God. Be not still. See how your enemies are astir. 
how your foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. With one mind they plotted together, they formed an alliance against you. So Psalm 83 clearly outlines what is at stake. When the enemies plot against those the Lord cherishes, they are plotting against the Lord. But we're happy to say that we know Adonai will not be silent. Amen. Not in Nehemiah's day, nor in the days to come. He will see his plan ultimately fulfilled. Israel will be vindicated. Jerusalem will be built up. And the people of God will live in the land never to be uprooted again. Amen. Once again, you should be able to see why the compiler of Ezra and Nehemiah wanted you to know in advance that Israel would not be overcome. Chapter 3 gave us the end from the beginning. And no matter how dark their present circumstances might appear, we can know that they will succeed. The same is also true for us, church. Messiah has given us the end from the beginning. And we can know for certain in our day that it is impossible for the enemy to subvert the plan of God. Saints, we keep talking to you about repeating patterns in shadows and types. It's a pattern throughout the word, and I'm going to show you one more example that is familiar. But there is a revival in Israel. A revival of believing ethnic Jews in Israel that begin to rebuild and are under righteous leadership. Then something always happens. The nations begin to conspire and in vain. There is a day coming when Messiah will put an end to this pattern. But Nehemiah shows you what it will look like. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Well, maybe it's because they're worshiping the moon god Sin or Allah. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. See, just like Psalm 83, they think they're plotting against Israel. But they're actually plotting against Israel's king, whether they know it or not. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The Lord goes on to laugh at these men because it is a cyclical pattern. Men have always schemed against the Lord's people and the Lord's plan. This pattern will continue right up to the final battle and the restoration of all things. We, however, are not unaware of the enemy's schemes, as 2 Corinthians 2.11 says. Where was Paul drawing that? See, verse 9 is our response to the schemes of the enemy. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. You see, men of God, it's time to pray like you are at war. Come on. Because you are at war. It's time to post a guard. Be aware and wake up to the spiritual warfare that is going on all around you. These same enemies, they are plotting against you and this church because we are grafted into Israel and as Messiah. We must do this day and day. And night, church. There are no off shifts in the kingdom of God. That's right. Anybody who has tried to go to vacation and experience spiritual warfare knows this is true. (laughs) We must remain sober to the schemes of the enemy and give him no room to exploit us, our families, or our brothers. Saints, you can take great confidence in the fact that the worldly regime will take its stand against God's people. Did you hear that? You can take great confidence knowing that the worldly regime will take its stand against God's people. It's going to happen. Get used to it. 
you can you can take even greater confidence that we will take our stand as well. Come on. The difference between us and them is that our labor is not in vain, as 1 Corinthians 15:58 says. It is not really you they are opposing. It is the Lord that they are opposing, but the Lord is with you, church. He is working with you, fighting for you. Your labor is not in vain. They will try as much as they can, but you are nothing more than an anvil that wears out hammers. There is nothing that can, that can come against us or stop us. To remember that as we read verses exactly. 10 to 12. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, see, friend, you said, the strength of the laborers is given out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Uh-oh. Also, our enemy says, Whoa. before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near, near them came and told us ten times over, Whoa. wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now remember, remember that the compiler of Ezra Nehemiah wanted you to know in advance that they would succeed because Adonai would cause them to succeed. This is why wave after wave of opposition is opposing this wave of comfort. We've just seen the external opposition, but now Nehemiah is facing the enemies within Jerusalem. We're talking about the enemies of fear here. Let's listen to what their fears sounded like for a moment. The strength of the laborers is giving out. My strength is giving out. There's so much rubble. So much. Man, I just can't see clearly. I'm foggy. We cannot rebuild. I don't have the capability to do this. (laughs) Then, on top of those things, the enemy began to whisper... Before they know it, before they see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Once again, their adversaries are trying to intimidate them and get them to give up. The enemies of Israel are trying to plant internal fears and concerns by just simply suggesting that their labor is really in vain. Despite what God had already declared to them, church. Then on top of it all, Jews who are a part of the family of God, their voices are behind them telling them ten times over that wherever you turn, they're going to attack us. All of these things were designed to break the resolve, resolve of Nehemiah and the men with him. There are external threats looming. And internal fears building. But instead of withdrawing or slowing, Nehemiah decides that it is time to rally the men Come of Israel. On, amen. Let's read about that in 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Yes. Come on. Now, while many of you know that this is one of the most preached on passages within the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, yeah. what you may not have wrestled with is the extent to which they so valiantly made their stand while not free of internal conflict. 
When we typically approach this passage, we rightly emphasize the masculine stand that they take by posting families in the lowest or weakest points in the wall. But this evening, we wanted to examine their state with the illusion of the first time. You okay with that? Yes. They are surrounded on an external level. They are genuinely not certain if their strength will last. And their strength to do the work is already giving out when they are only halfway through. <laughs> they are wrestling with the demonic thoughts planted by the enemy. Before you know it, we will be there and kill you. They have brothers who are well-meaning, but they're faithless. Yeah. Telling them ten times over that the enemy will cut them down no matter where they are. The warfare happening is primarily going on in their own minds. Not one blow has been struck. Come on. You thought about that? Yeah. Not, Not one blow has been struck. Not one sword has been drawn. Not one warrior has been clashed. The warfare is between faith in the plan of God and the ever-growing fear that they will not be able to see it come to pass. They have thoughts like, someone else must be better fit for this. Or maybe we got the timing wrong on this whole building project. Pastor, I can see another kind of warfare going on right now. It is for the alertness of several people in the room. Hallelujah. I got 34 minutes with you. Can you wake up? Yes. Rouse yourself. Yes. Come on. Saints, we are talking to you about actual combat. Master just told you not one sword was drawn. Not one shield was used. The combat was going on inside of their own minds. Where are you this evening? You really want to tell me that this doesn't pertain to you? That the combat you're experiencing is primarily with a sword and a shield, that's your real problem? Or perhaps, just maybe, if you interact with Nehemiah with the illusion of the first time, you might gain something. Yeah. Come on. See, I'm a preacher's kid, and I've heard thousands of sermons on Nehemiah 4. Man, they were strong! They showed up with their weapons. Yeah, their weapons didn't do anything for them. Their weapons were not the problem. The problem was the offense that was going on inside of their own mind, right. heart, will, and emotions. Yeah, we need it, Pastor. See, we typically consider the external first. It's where our minds gravitate to. It's what we long for. We're like, yes, let me kill Goliath. <laughs> you forget about the real struggle, the first and primary battle, the internal conflict when attempting to do God's will, the battle between their heart and mind and will and emotions and the actual action of what is right. Yeah, right. These men went to war with their thoughts and doubts that threatened to choke them out and stood in the most exposed places of the wall anyway. Amen. That is masculinity, friends. Amen. Being at war with your own inadequacy, yes. standing up under a barrage of internal thoughts and rejecting it all in favor of faith. Amen. Faith, of course, always shows up in action. The men go face the most exposed areas of their city. They face the most exposed areas head on and thereby put themselves between any threat and those who live inside the city. They did all of this while they are currently, presently in internal opposition, but they did it anyway. Men of God, I hope you are hearing us tonight. You need to learn to wake up and stand in the fight, and it starts in your own heart and mind. Not one sword clashed with another. Not one warrior killed another. The battle was won in the minds and the hearts of the men who chose to act upon what they knew was right in spite of their own internal conflict. Standing in the most exposed places. Well, 
They could probably see their enemies waiting for their opportunity. They're not hiding behind the wall. They're standing in the open portion of the wall, looking at who is looming, surrounded. See, the result of bravely staring at what they feared in the face, well, it was that their enemies lost heart instead of them. Look, I don't know what kind of internal struggles you're going through, but I know the ones I have. If you can learn to stare it in the face and win the internal war, you will find that those adversaries lose heart long before you do. We're going to get into that more in the coming verses. But first, we wanted to read to you from 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 12. Verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. You see, Paul, without a doubt, experienced physical difficulties in Ephesus, where he faced wild beasts. But notice, that is not what is in reference here. He's talking about the pressure. Has anybody ever experienced pressure? You see, the pressure that Paul was experiencing was far beyond his ability to endure. This is not about any particular beating or persecution. As much as we like to read about that stuff, that's not what Paul was facing. There is a mounting pressure that is associated with doing God's will. The pressure is always an amalgamation of your own concerns regarding your ability to complete the work, regarding lies from the enemy, that may temporarily feel like your own thoughts and the faithlessness of others, just like the pressure experienced in Nehemiah's day. Check out verse 9. Listen to what Paul says in the next verse. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. It's the pressure that we're talking about. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. As the primary enemy Paul is outlining is the feeling of the sentence of death between his ears, in his heart. Paul was quite familiar with what it was like to nearly die in a physical sense. Pretty regularly. That's not what he's talking about here. In fact, he wanted to die. That's right. He would go into it. The thing facing his heart was the death of God's will, the death of his team's purpose, the death of what Paul had hoped for in the Lord. The cure, as Paul described it, was hope. Oh, come on. Come on, man. Hope that has been set on the Lord, who continues to deliver despite all of the internal conflicts that Paul was facing. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Let's keep going in verse 11. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on, be- on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Church, it's the grace of God. The power beyond his own capacity was what Paul relied upon. Now, Nehemiah's work and story 
would have been some of the things Paul first became familiar with as a diaspora Jew who came to Jerusalem for Torah study. Yep. Now there's a profound lesson for the heart of every man when we learn to rely on Yahweh like Nehemiah did and trust him who is able to make us stand. Yeah. Yeah. Let's read Jude before moving on. Jude, starting in verse 20. I'm going to work through this quickly with you, but it is also something that you should note because it will save your very life. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight we're not going to talk about speaking in tongues other than to say you are a builder and you need to keep building so that you can shut out the lies of the enemy. Amen. This is like posting a guard day and night. Verse 21, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Saints, this is like relying on Adonai to cause the work to be completed because he's the one who moved on the king's heart to bring it about. Verse 22 and 23 say, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This is standing with the other men of God and helping each other stand by any means necessary. Amen. Verse 24 goes on to say, to him who is able, to him who is able to keep you from falling Amen. and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Amen. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ Amen. our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Saints, at the end of the day, Every one of your battles, whether they appear to be external or internal, will be determined by your trust in Adonai. Yes. Because he is able to make you stand. Yeah. Amen. Thanks. Do you speak well? It's useless if you don't deeply trust the Lord. Amen. Do you sing well? Well, it's useless if you do not deeply trust the Lord. Amen. Do you gain great insight into study? It is useless if you do not deeply trust the Lord. Come on. I hear this one. Do you have reason to believe you cannot accomplish the mission due to your own inadequacy? Well, it doesn't matter if you trust the Lord. Amen. The real battle is fought in the conflict within your own mind. You win that by standing to do what is right, even when you are inwardly trembling, just like these men did. Amen. Demonstrate your trust through right action, and he, Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord of all creation, will keep you from falling. Amen. Amen. Verse 15. Our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. We all returned to the wall, each to his own task, to his own work. Each to his own work. Look, once faith, once faith was chosen over fear, this battle was already over. Amen. Yeah. You see, the enemy dissipated and they got back to work. When Peter said to resist the devil and he will flee, did you think that Peter was talking about your 45? <laughs> Did you think Peter was talking about your AR-15s? Look, be calm, Texans. The battle wasn't won because of their weapons. They didn't even use their weapons. They didn't even need them. The battle was won when they chose faith over fear. It sold it there. Let's go to verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried material did their work with one hand Ooh. and held a weapon in the other. Come on. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side 
as he as he worked. Yeah. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Come on. So these these verses here, 16 through 18, they give us a description of the various men engaged in the work. What should not be missed as we talk about these verses, though, is that they are all carrying both instruments of war and instruments of construction. Men of God have always been required to both be able to destroy and to be able to build. It's likely that the Apostle Paul had a passage in mind, this one, in the usage of multiple instruments, talking about in the right and in the left hand, and in the constant opposition that they faced on internal and external levels. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 through 10 to you. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Oh, get it. In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor. Bad report and good report. Genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Church, the work of God cannot be stopped. When men are posted on their section of the wall, zealously working to build the wall and protect the brothers on their left and right, no amount of internal conflict, no amount of discouragement, or even external persecution will bring the supernatural work to a halt. Amen. Now, before we move to verse 19, there's some specific details that we'd like for you to remember. Men of God are always required to hold multiple tools in their hands, and all are weapons of righteousness. Amen. A man acting in faithfulness will be required to destroy and to build. Mm, come on. This starts in his own soul. And must, must proceed to his family, his team relationships, in every area of ministry. It is not acceptable for you to be able to build others up alone. Or for you to be able to tear things down alone. We, like Nehemiah, must represent the Lord in the fullness of his desire, being able to do both at the Lord's discretion. The one person that Nehemiah always kept close to him was the trumpeter. <laughs> this is because he was the sole means of rallying the brothers to each other where they were needed. There's a serious lesson that must remain close to our hearts in this. When in the heat of battle, the call to rally to our brothers' needs must always reign by our side at all times. An additional detail that we must retain is that the officers at no point in time made themselves the front and center of the work. Instead, their purpose was to support, to strengthen, and to equip the men God had appointed to them. Amen. Yeah. To be an officer of our lives can no longer be our own. But instead, 
They must be about raising up the workmen that God has appointed for us to build. Let's go to verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. So at this point in our teaching, we have already shown you maps, and you are aware that it is a vast and difficult area for a small group of men to defend. We're going to limit our comments on the subject to say that the workers are always few and the harvest is always plentiful. It's always going to be like that. We must therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up harvesters instead of just numbers or outward success. The welfare of our mission in the plan of God hinges upon raising up generations of men who are in substance the same as us and better. Yeah. We don't have time to explore John 4 this evening because we still have extraordinary things to get to. But you should know that Jesus commands that we should no longer say four months more until the harvest. Well, Nehemiah, upon learning of the harvest in Jerusalem, wasted no time and immediately began in labor, in prayer, fasting, and preparation for four months. Many in this room believe that you will be sent to a land like Nehemiah. We implore you tonight to heed the words of Jesus and emulate the faith of Nehemiah by not waiting until you arrive in Jerusalem by beginning the preparations now. Do not say four more months. It starts now. Verse 20. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continue the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helpers stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. So there's a consistent and overriding theme in the work of Nehemiah, which you should remember correlates to the Ketuvim and the strength of national Israel. The strength of national Israel is not really represented By the stone and mortar that makes up the physical walls. It is represented by the brothers and by the tribes that make up the family of Israel. Guys, no matter the sacrifice, they served and fought for one another. And the construction of the walls was simply the result of their inward conviction. It's the outward expression of it. The strength of Israel has always been defined by trust in Adonai and unity with one another. Trusting Adonai and being unified with each other is where the strength of Israel is and it's where our strength lies as well. Whether they have walls or they don't have physical walls, Israel has always been historically strong when they were united with one another and when they trusted Adonai together. When do you think we're going to be at our strongest? Come on. Let's interact with that for just a moment. Would you describe Israel as uh, weak during the days of Joshua? No. No. Did they have walls during the days of Joshua? (laughs) No. No. So there's something more at play than just the walls. As Pastor just said, the walls are the fruit of all 12 tribes being unified again. Come on. Of rising faith and trust in Adonai alone. There's a real lesson with the things that you want to see completed, like walls in your life, things that you want to see built up. You go back to trust in Adonai, 
in real unity with all 12 tribes, with all of your brothers. See, naturally, what will flow out of your life is the construction that God desires. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Let's keep going, brother. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. So on the most basic level, this is a beautiful verse. Neither Nehemiah, his men, or his brothers were willing to be off duty, even to get water. This is because Nehemiah has never been willing to rest while Jerusalem was in trouble. On a more nuanced level, some of you may be aware that the Vulgate manuscripts, and consequently some English translations, say, none of us put off our clothes, saving that everyone put them off for washing. Aside from the archaic language of the KJV, this alternative interpretation has its own beautiful merits. In summary, the Vulgate has Nehemiah dressed and ready, except for mikvot, ceremonial washings that were intended to ensure right standing with God as one sought favor with Adonai. The perspective outlined in the NIV is beautiful, and it's the most common interpretation of verse 23. The perspective outlined in the KJV is beautiful and highlights the desire for right standing with God even in the heat of battle. The reason for the drastic differences in interpretation is because the Hebrew structure is difficult to interpret and there may be an idiom at play. We believe that there is an idiom at play and has yet a third interpretation outlined in the slide. Do you want to see what that looks oh, like? Yeah. Yeah. Third option. You ready? Yeah. My brother and actually brothers probably. That Nehemiah had brothers appears from Nehemiah 1-2. That one of them, Hananiah, had accompanied him to Jerusalem is evident from Nehemiah 7-2. My servants, see about verse 16, the men of the guard that followed me. As governor, Nehemiah would maintain a bodyguard in addition to his band of slaves or servants, saving that everyone put them off for washing. So the Vulgate. Got me out, Oh, y'all want to hear the Vulgate? Yeah. Un skiske tantum nudabatur ad baptismum. Yes. Got it. If you ever wanted to attend Mass, just. We're good. It is at least doubtful whether the Hebrew words can possibly have this meaning. Exactly. The most natural and literal sense of them is that given by Maur Rambat, each man's weapon was his water. The supposed connection of the clause with the preceding beginning, no one took off his clothes, not even for the bath, no one bathed. A man's only bath was his weapon. So we have a few details that could seem confusing to begin with. I want to help you put together three possible interpretations. We are appreciative and see the merits of the first two interpretations that we read to you before the slide. One being from the NIV, the concept being they wouldn't take off their weapons even to go to the water. Battle ready. Not going to rest while Jerusalem's in trouble. The other being from the KJV, where they only took off their weapons for ceremonial washings that were intended to keep men in right standing with God. The lesson that could be derived from that is that in the heat of battle, right standing with God is still the priority. Yeah. We are of the opinion that both of these interpretations 
are missing a critical aspect of interpreting the verse. The most literal understanding of the Hebrew phrase in verse 23, as you can see on the slide, is each man's weapon was his water. We believe this to be a Hebrew idiom that is describing the condition of the men during this heated time frame. In the Bible, water takes on meaning regularly beyond its most basic understanding. Those of you who are familiar with our marriage teaching will recognize that you are never to go more than three days without drinking water. The Bible, of course, is not speaking about your hydration. We're going to leave that for another evening. In our opinion, this passage is not just speaking about water as a basic necessity for washing your body or for drinking, as the NIV puts it, but instead communicating the way they cling to the weapons as a man might cling to water in a desert. It's a fairly typical Hebrew euphemism. While it is always possible that our assessment is missing something that will be revealed at a later date, when you start with the literal Hebrew, not what men have translated as, each man's weapon was his water, and evaluate the Peshach, well, it doesn't lend a tenable position. They were not drinking steel swords. The Peshach does not work. You with me so far? If, however, you view the literal as a remiss, something that is hinting at more, and then evaluate the context and the usage of water and weapons throughout the word, it does yield a beautiful understanding that, again, in our opinion, is better than both of the first two we showed you. Our interpretation is based upon the belief that verse 23 is a remez, i.e. it is using an idiom or a euphemism, and that a simple derash of the passage and the related concepts yields a good understanding of verse 23. So the literal translation is, each man's weapon was his water. Man, that's incredible. Yeah. It communicates the way that they clung to their weapons as a man might cling to water in a desert. Church, how important is it to cling to your weapons? Yeah. How important is it to have the sword of righteousness in your hand? To cling to the word of God with everything you have like you actually depend on it. Remember Moses said these are not just idle words. They are your life. Yeah. Come on, when we know we're in battle, we cling to that sword like we can't lose it. This reminds us of 2 Samuel 23, 9 through 10. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary. And his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Understand something about this man, Eleazar. His weapon was his water. His hand was tired, but it didn't matter. He clung to that sword anyway, and he went to war. This is the attitude that the men of Nehemiah had, and this is the attitude that we must have, church. Ooh, listen to John 4.31. Meanwhile, Jesus' disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? 
My food, said Jesus. Let me explain this to you. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Like it doesn't matter what you're feeling or what opposition you're facing. It doesn't matter if you're dealing with that internal opposition that is coming against you that you're battling with between your ears. It doesn't matter if you're facing external opposition of jeers and ridicule. It doesn't matter if you just don't feel right. You know what the cure for all of that is? Get back to the last thing that God told you to do. Pick up your weapons and go after the will of God. That is your food. That is your water. That is your sustenance. That is what the Son of God proclaimed. My food is to do the will of my Father and to not stop doing His will until it is completed on the earth. You feeling any of those things? Get back to doing the will of God. Put those weapons back in your hand and God Himself will bring you sustenance along the way. So come to our final passage. It's going to be 2 Corinthians 10 and we're going to pick up in verse 3. Come on. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, and flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Come on. Look at what is before your eyes. Woo. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ... Let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Yeah, we stand here today as a body, a team, a unit designed to work together to accomplish the will of God on earth. Amen. We all stand with spiritual weapons of war that have been placed in our hands. And we are sounding the trumpet tonight to pick up those weapons and put them to use against the strongholds that are before you, both from within and without all arguments and lofty opinions raising themselves against the knowledge of God will be taken captive tonight and made to be obedient to Christ. Look at who is before your eyes tonight. Take a moment. Look at who is before your eyes. Look to your left and to your right. Those who are standing here to serve the Lord, to follow him with all their hearts. These saints before you are rising up to be both warriors as well as construction workers. Be reminded that they are born again and in Christ just as much as you are. And we will learn to use what we have been given to raise up men around us and ensure that they are operating in their full function and potential in Christ. The use of our weapons is the very thing that will continue to nourish us into the seasons and exploits to come. So saints, this evening... We're about to hand things over to our pastors with five minutes left on the clock. I don't know what water has been sustaining you, but I genuinely believe that the Spirit of God is calling for our weapons to become our water. That no longer is it something that sits on the shelf until we need it, but we learn to drink from the very Word of God. I think you can hear tonight a call and a responsibility to one another. It's time that we recognize the days and the seasons that we're in. 
Although you may not see soldiers lined up outside, there is a very real war going on between your ears. You've heard it in sermon after sermon, but today, tonight, it's the time that we pick up the weapons that are required to put it to death permanently. We learn what it is to shut those lies out where they no longer have a hold over you. See, the men, they weren't free of those things. They just learned to do it anyway. Yeah. See, there's a special kind of freedom in a defiance of fear. Yeah. That is our desire for you. Amen. Stand to your feet with us. If you've ever li- felt like the stones in your life were just burnt and, and useless, yeah. tonight you should feel differently and be able to rise up and look at what is before you. Amen. It is about us putting our absolute full trust in the Lord in every single moment that our weapons in both our right hand and our left hand might become like water to us. A desperation to put them into practice, to hold them dear, and to put our eyes... Look at this verse that's on the screen for you. Look at what is before your eyes. Not just figuratively. Look at what is before your eyes. Look at the men and the women that are in this room. Look at the weapons that you have. Look at what you've been given. If anybody's got some confidence, that's what God is doing. He's saying, look at what I've given you. Now trust in me and prove it by standing up, no matter how you're feeling on the inside, no matter what the enemies are, internal, external, or even celestial. Stand up, have the weapons in your hand, both build and fight. Both build and fight, because that's what you have, that's what you've been given. And that's what this house is going to continue to do in ever-increasing ways. Do we have some builders in this house? Yes! Do we have some warriors in this house? Yes! I want you to look at where your lives are right now. Look at what God has done with what was once rubble and burnt stones. Some of you guys, when you walked in, you were burnt toast. That man was fried. Oh, but how the Word of God has made the simple lies. Your lives prove that the resurrection power of Christ is still at work. And we have more yet work to do. Are we going to do it? Yes! Somebody who knows how to clear, hold, and build. I don't know, Paul Rosales. Oh, yeah. Why don't you finish us in prayer, brother? Like God, we